the way of wisdom. Lord, would you open our hearts to the way of wisdom that we could walk in it in this new year. Lord, order our steps according to your will, not according to ours. Jesus, I pray in your holy name. As some of you have commented on numerous occasions, you've seen the pages coming out of my Bible, and you've consistently said, Pastor, when are you going to buy a new Bible? I tried several times, and every time I attempted to buy one, it just wasn't there and didn't work. And I said, well, Lord, I'm not going to buy one. You're going to have to give me one. And one of you had great compassion on me. And I received this beautiful Bible this week. Green Schuyler Bible. They're one of the finest Bibles produced in the world. So I took the Bible and I sat down to read it for the first time. And I opened the Bible and it fell open to Job the 28th chapter, and immediately my eye fell on the 28th verse. I want to read it for you. Job 28, verse 28. The background is speaking about where does wisdom live and where can we find wisdom? You understand that wisdom is the overarching understanding of all reality. Most of us have spent most of our lives trying to gain knowledge. Knowledge in the Greek and the Hebrew both, it's the practical understanding of what am I supposed to do to make this new iPhone work? I'm still not sure how to make my Android phone work. It does things, and I have no explanation for why it does it. Suddenly the screen will get real big, or suddenly something will pop up. I'm saying, why? I don't have the knowledge. I'm not a techie. Wisdom is not knowledge. It's the overarching reality of life. Let me read it for you. And he said to man... The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. If you do not shun evil, it's because you have no fear of God in your heart. You know how everything works, but you have no respect for God. Because you believe that you're God. All of us were raised to believe that we were God. Even if we were raised to be Christian, there was the underlying belief that said, I can do this myself. I can take the information that's out there about Jesus, about God, about the Christian life, and I can shape for myself a faith that I'm comfortable with. And I'll be the decider of what I should be doing with my time and my energy and my money. And so I'm God. I own the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And okay, I'll be a Christian and I'll only go after that which is good. 
No fear of God. What is fear of God? The recognition that God is above all and that he holds your life in his hands, that he is in charge of you, that you are not in charge of your own ways, your own thoughts, your own beliefs. There is a higher power. And right now he is allowing you to pursue the tree of the knowledge of good, hopefully not evil. But all of that knowledge that you've stored up is of no value if there is no fear of God in your heart. And often when we do something that we know we should not be doing, there is a twinge of conscience that says, I should not have said that. I should not go there. I should not, I should not be that way. But we're quickly able to suffuse that in They deserved it. They had it coming. I had to give them a piece of my mind, as though we had extra to give away. I don't. So we deal, bottom line, doing the best we can do with what we have, and we say, God, you're just going to have to be satisfied with that. There's no fear of God. So there's no wisdom. And there's destruction. And we end up in places, in activities that are harmful to us. And we say, why? Why? I spoke with someone this morning who said to me of his wife, she is my punishment for my sin. Really? Is that how God treats us you know look at your wife and see if you think she's the punishment of your life you know I have this relationship because of my sin in reality God gives us these beautiful women in our lives to try to break through our lack of wisdom to redeem us by their compassion and their love But we guys, you know, we want the women in our lives to act the way we want them to act. And if they don't, we think we're in charge of straightening them out. Nothing could be further from the truth. I have yet to meet a woman who wants to be straightened out by a man. I I may be totally wrong in this. Could I see a show of hands? Is there any woman here who desires to be straightened out by a man? You know what I mean by straightened out. When you take nails that are crooked and you get a hammer and you hammer on the nail to straighten it out so that you can build something worthwhile. And of course, we want to build something worthwhile with that wife, but she has to get straightened out first. I didn't see any of the women raise their hands. Nobody volunteered to get hammered on so the husband could build something that he thinks is worthwhile. And some women, frankly, are so shy of getting married. They don't want to get married because they're afraid if they get married, their life will be over and they'll get hammered on. It's an illusion to think that women are the weaker sex. I've seen no evidence of that. Frankly, I think they're a lot tougher men than we are. Wisdom comes 
as we go through these times that turn our heart toward God so that we have to fear God because we can't control these creatures. And slowly, as we begin to learn how to treat with love what God has given to us, we begin to understand that the God we serve is a God of majesty and love and mercy. And we begin to understand that, do I dare say this? For the most part, it's we men who need to get hammered on by God to get us straightened out so he can build something worthwhile with us. When I look at this text, causes me to, to recognize that every time I have not shunned what is evil, it was because I had the bit in my teeth and I was going to go where I wanted to go and do what I wanted to do. And I was going to say what I wanted to say. And I was going to build what I wanted to build. And frankly, most of what we build in that mode is self-destructive and brings pain and suffering and anguish to our hearts. If the Lord does not build the house, the workers work in vain. I've spent many years working in vain. Any of you spend any time working in vain? That led me to the material that I was led by the Spirit to talk with you about today. It's an old story. It's about our forefather, Abram. Abram is used through the book of Romans, through the book of Galatians. He's used as an example of a man who was made righteous by being walked through deep water of suffering. And God came to Abram and he said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. I don't know about you gals, since I've never been one. But I'll tell you the dominant issue for most of us who are men, and it's fear. Many of us have had our lives driven by fear. Fear of failure, fear of loss, fear of lack of control, fear of not being loved. Fear is a dominant force in the American male. Now, because we don't want that to be known, we act fearless. And we do things and say things that we should not be doing or saying because we're trying to prove how fearless we are how brave we are, how courageous we are. And God came to Abram and he knew exactly the right thing to say to him. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So God said to him, I'm going to do two things for you that will allow your fear to be taken away. Number one, I'm going to guard you. I'm going to shield you. I'm going to protect you. You are safe. And secondly, I'm going to greatly reward you. You're not going to be penniless. You're not going to lose everything. I'm going to step in and I'm going to provide for you. And of course, Abram immediately answers with, but. That's typical of us as well. Okay, God, you said you were going to step in and provide for us. 
then why am I in this situation? And it seems hopeless. And what are you going to do to deliver me? So the word of God came to Abram. He made him an incredible promise. He entered into a covenant of blood with Abram. To say to him, put your fear down. Step up and begin to do what I've asked you to do. And I'm making a blood covenant with you. Now the blood covenant was to take these animals and cut them in half. And lay out a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a young pigeon cut in half. The blood then flowed down into the center. And then God came and walked in the blood and made a covenant with Abraham. But Abram did not walk through the blood. Normally a covenant requires both to go through the blood. In this case, God said, I will do this for you. And I am making a blood covenant saying, if I don't do this, you may kill me. Now, I'm not sure how he could kill God, but Abram got the message. This was as serious a commitment as could be made in that historical time. A blood covenant was absolutely non-negotiable, unalterable after the covenant was made. It could not be revoked. It was in effect for perpetuity. To your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites. And he names all the peoples. And he said, you will have a son. You will have an inheritance. I guarantee it by blood. Now he comes home. And Sarah, Abram's wife, was barren. The greatest pain of this couple's heart. They could not have children. And it was God who was keeping them from having children. Sometimes I have said, why am I so barren? Where is the hand of God with revival power? America is dying. Surely God sees that and cares about America. Has he invested so much in this nation that he's going to let it just be swept away by the devil in destruction? I don't believe that for a second. And why am I so barren? Why is the message that's preached from this pulpit Sunday after Sunday and the message that goes forth on radio day after day, why does it come back barren? It's very easy for a man to begin to look at the physical reality of his life and say, I see all of this. I get it. You gave me a promise, God. God gave me a promise when I was a little child. He showed me in vision the Hilton Memorial Chapel. He showed the crowds to me that were flocking, the people weeping before God. He showed me full-blown revival. Well... That was your promise, God. Why am I so barren? And God does not answer why questions. They are punitive questions. They are are 
critical questions. If I say to Ed, why are you treating me this way? His immediate response is going to be probably, I'm not treating you anyway. I'm innocent of this charge. Defensive. If he's like I am at all. What, what do you mean? Well, God doesn't like to be asked why questions. He doesn't like to be punished by man. Doesn't like to be accused by man. Darii, Abram's wife, had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Probably she acquired Hagar when Abram, very young in his walk with the Lord, would not stay in the promised land because God was testing him and he could not pass the test. So he headed to Egypt, and while in Egypt, they found Hagar. She said to Abram, chapter 16 of Genesis, verse 2, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. You understand, this was a common practice in that culture. It was totally acceptable to go sleep with the wife's servant, take her as a wife, To produce a child because your wife couldn't produce a child. No one would question it. No one would even think it was anything wrong. But the God of heaven didn't function that way. And one of the greatest struggles we have is how to separate from our cultural acceptance of wickedness. And have a focus on fear of God so that we learn from him what is acceptable and not from the culture what is acceptable. Last Sunday, the Hillsong Church, now a very famous church in America, a megachurch, had on stage a scantily dressed woman in a white dress, miniskirt, and a whole entourage of people dressed similarly as they did a dance number for O Silent Night. Utterly unclean, utterly dark, with all the lights of Hollywood. The production was a quality production that you would see on Broadway. This is the church of today. When we cannot produce what we think we should produce, then man's heart overflows with ambition and says, I can produce what I want to produce. I know how to do it. People want to see a song and a dance. So let's do a song and a dance. And let's entertain the people. And let's bring in just the right mixture of God and sex. And marry them together. And now people are going to flood in. And they are. This Hagar Ishmael story. Is the story of the church. It's the story of many of our lives. Where we have seen the barrenness. We have finally become desperate to produce what we want to produce, to leave a legacy for ourselves and our family. 
to produce what we desire to produce for our own comfort or to simply survive. And so our mind is filled with plans. Some people I know, if they're trying this, if it doesn't work, they go here. If that doesn't work, they go there. If that doesn't work, they they jump like frogs until finally they get to the right place. And now they have a money machine, and they're going to crank that money machine, and they're going to live the good life. And they have no fear of God. They only fear loss of money, loss of stature, loss of self. They don't fear God. Now, please hear me. As you'll learn through this story, God did not want them to be childless. God doesn't want you to live in poverty. God doesn't want you to live in pain and sickness and anguish. But he wants to take care of that in his way at his initiation and not the initiation of the flesh. And that's where wisdom is required. For without wisdom, we will have no fear of God and we will only go for what we want Regardless of how it hurts others, regardless of how it hurts our families or our children, we go after what we think we want. And it's utter wickedness. So how do I know the difference between what I want and what God wants? It begins with the fear of God. The fear of God that says, I will not do anything outside of the will of my Father. I will pray, I will read the word, I will wait on God. I've been waiting on God for 46 years for revival. I've spent many of those years in fasting and prayer, searching after him, saying, why does he delay? Accusing him of not caring, accusing him of letting me hang that the promise must not be true because I've spent my whole life waiting on him. What if I do not see revival in my day? Does that mean that God was unfair? No. It's God's timing for when he builds his church. It's not my timing. But I'm called to be faithful to do what he's called me to do and to preach what I'm to preach. I think Noah probably would have rather died after he built the ark and not have to gone through the flood. Can you imagine getting off that boat and seeing the entire world utterly devastated? Seeing the clouds in the air from the volcanoes that were going off? The terror of that land must have been amazing as the animals turned against them And they began to have to protect themselves from the lion and the bear. I would not have wanted to make that transition. But he was faithful to the promises of God. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. You notice she did not twist his arm. She didn't pound on him. She merely made a suggestion. And he should have had the wisdom To say no to her, just like Eve did not pound on Adam to get him to eat the fruit. Adam was supposed to just politely say, no, thank you. Let's not do that. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. 
So they'd been living in Egypt now for 10 years. And Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Now the marvel, how do you sleep with an Egyptian maidservant in order to be productive because God has not shown up for you? The greatest temptation of man's heart is that is that God will not be his shield and God will not be his reward. And after all, if it's going to be, I've got to go do it. Because look, my life is going by. I'm getting older. God's not brought me what he promised he would bring me. So if it's ever going to happen, I better go do it. That is the evil spoken of in Job, where a man has no fear of God. And because of that, totally lacks wisdom. And will not turn from evil. Immediately the trouble began. This peaceful household was utterly disrupted. As soon as she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. She began to claim the first place with Abram. She began to treat Sarai as though Sarai were the servant, not Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant, and she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram, with great wisdom, said to her, do with her whatever you think is best, honey. So she treated her harshly. She probably beat her. That would have been common in that day. And Hagar ran. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that's beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. The angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. And so it has been with the Arabs from that day forward. Misery. Fighting. A donkey of a man. So instead of waiting on God, he said, look, I'm going to go do it because I want it. And besides, I'm sure that Hagar was beautiful. What misery was introduced into their lives. What brokenness. What sorrow. Because there was no wisdom in the decision to produce for himself what God had promised him. And burning in the heart of every one of us is that desire to be safe. 
that desire to have the reward of our hearts. And when we go and begin to create that for ourselves in our marriage, it brings utter distress and bickering and fighting. When a wife says to a husband, you're not, you won't, I wish you would, and all the accompanying things that can be said. You know there's misery in that household. You never, I wish you'd just die. Such misery begins to break out in the household. Because there's no wisdom of God. There's no fear of God. There's only, I will do what I have to do. Because that's the definition of a man, isn't it? He's going to do what a man has to do. No. God is our shield. God is our reward. And I recognize that when the gospel of Jesus begins to be fleshed out as fear of God... When it begins to be fleshed out that we must turn from evil and enter in the gates of righteousness. And our prominent desire then becomes to be like Jesus, to have Jesus created and formed in us. When that becomes the primary desire of a man's heart or a woman's heart, everything else is pushed back and pushed away. God is the one that enables a man or a woman to gain wealth. And he chooses how to do that. He had to make Abram wait so long because Abram was still filled with Abram. And that had to be broken. God was so grieved by this action on Abram's part and Sarai's part that God withdrew from them And for the next 13 years would not speak with them. Now understand, they'd only been there 10 years. And God repeatedly spoke to them during those 10 years. But for the next 13 years, God was gone. You can take actions that will cause God to withdraw from you. Please understand, God is a person Jesus is a man. He's a heavenly man, but he is a man. And you can say things to him and you can do things in your life that will cause him to withdraw from you. One of the greatest sorrows of my dad's heart was that he was called to be an ordained pastor. He was offered a church and he turned it down. And he turned it down because he said he only had a third grade education and could not speak properly. Never mind that he preached powerfully. Served for many years as the head elder of churches. But my dad on a number of occasions said to me in great warning, Ray, when I turned the Lord down, And I said no to his call. He left me. And he has not ever called to me again. 
And he said, the greatest sorrow of my heart is that I turned him down and did not trust him to be my power and my strength. I didn't trust him to use me. I said no. And he called me and he called me and he called me and I kept saying no, no, no. He said it was my angry pride. He said, I thought I would be made a fool of if I went in certain places and preached with my inability to use the language correctly. And he warned me, do not say no to the Holy Spirit. When he calls you, answer. Because you may cause him such grief of heart that he will leave you and not call you again. I'm sure Abraham was concerned about that because it was 13 years with no call from God living in this foreign land. I'm sure he was tempted to return home to Ur of the Chaldees. It would have been a good business decision. But he didn't. He waited. And finally God came. And he spoke again. And he called once more. And this is what God said to him. This is chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty, the provider. He provided for himself and it grieved God so much that he withdrew from him. Now, just to finish the story with my dad, he spent the rest of his life as a godly servant, walking humbly before God, rejoicing in his salvation, but utterly grieved that he had disqualified himself for the work of the gospel. And I used to go with my dad night after night as we would go out and do Bible studies in homes, and he would open his Bible and he would teach the gospel in the homes. He could do that. But God never allowed him to pastor. He preached, but he was never allowed to pastor. And it was the grief of his heart. Some of you here today have grieved God. And some of you have said to me, why doesn't God talk to me? Because you've grieved him. By your actions, you've grieved him. That does not mean that he'll wait 13 years before he'll speak to you again. It might, but usually not. Usually with deep repentance and a fear of God and recognizing that he holds your life in his hands, he will come back and he'll begin to direct your steps once more. Our God is a merciful God. But he had to be this tough with Abram because Abram had a very specific mission to fulfill in establishing the children of Israel as a nation. So he says to Abram, I am El Shaddai. I am the God who provides, not you. You're not the provider, God. I'm the God who provides. Walk before me and be blameless. No more games, Abram. Don't mess with me, Abram. Be afraid. Be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you. So after 13 years, he comes back and he says, remember that covenant I made with you? 
All right, I'm going to reconfirm that covenant. I'm restoring you. This time, Abram falls face down on the ground. Finally, Abram has begun to fear God. And then he takes him into the second part of this covenant. Verse 9, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Remember the first time the covenant was given, it was all God. It was the blood of the animals representing Jesus. But now, God says, now you're going to get some skin in the game. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now please note. Every male has to be circumcised. And it is symbolically saying we have no ability to produce children without you, almighty God. God makes the covenant, and then he says, but now I see you didn't have any skin in the game. Now you're going to have skin in this game. And you're going to have to recognize that you have no ability to go out and produce on your own. That I alone produce life. So the covenant of circumcision is given. Now at the age of 99... God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarai, you're to no longer call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her, and you will surely have a son by her. And all Abraham could do is fall down and laugh. But at least he had the good sense to fall down on his face, because he had some fear of God. And he said to himself, another sign of growing up, He didn't accuse God. He said in his own heart, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? He knew she was no longer having a period. It was utterly impossible for this woman to have a child. And so Abram, Abraham says to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. If only the works of the flesh could live under your blessing, God. Let me light my own fires and then bless the work of my hands. Bless me, God. Bless me, God, while I go about my business. Are you kidding me? God's not going to bless us while we go about our business. You understand everything we've learned from our families Everything we've learned from our culture has been, look, you can't really trust God. He won't intervene in time and space and history. We really have to just trust ourselves. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. This whole journey was begun with me coming before God, saying to him, I don't see you moving in my life. I see no evidence that you're even present. I'm going to establish a test, and either you show up or I'm no longer going to serve you. I'm leaving the ministry, and I'm going into business, and I'm going to become a very wealthy man and live a good life. 
So either you show up or I'm out of here. And I gave that one hour a day to pray. And God began to deal with my heart. And then he came in time and space and history and powerfully intervened in a way that I could not deny. I wonder if there are some of you here today who have never seen God beyond any question step into your life and totally change your circumstances as an act of divine mercy. How quick I have been to forget that incredible coming of God. It's like, God, what can you do for me today? Okay, you did that yesterday and the week before, but how about today? I need this. Like the children of Israel, always grumbling, always demanding something new. Never content to let God work out his plan, his way, in his time. Now, I want to just caution you on another side. If you think what I'm talking about is passivity, nothing could be further from the truth. He sends me to that radio station day after day after day until I am utterly exhausted. He sets up a Friday night meeting and says, do it. He didn't say, would you like to do that, Ray? He didn't ask my opinion. He said, do it. Yes, sir. I'll do it. Yes, sir. I'll go to the radio. Yes, sir. I'll come and preach and teach and love the people at the National Prayer Chapel. He didn't ask me if I wanted to love you all. He said, do it. And I said, yes, sir. And it's a pleasure most of the time. In other words... As God begins to come, he begins to give very specific direction regarding what he wants us to do. And he doesn't come back and keep repeating it. He expects you to go do it. God is not a God of passivity. He's a God of action. He expects us to throw off what hinders us and to be about his business. Even when it's inconvenient business and goes against what we would most desire to do in our heart. And not only that, he expects me to come to this church, he expects me to go to that radio, he expects me to do that Friday night, he expects me to visit with you, to talk with you on the phone, he expects all of that to be done in joy. He does not expect that I will do it with groaning and moaning and complaining. He does not expect me to be going to you and saying, it's so tough on this radio deal. You know, I I wish I could just quit. Do you know how angry he would be with me if I began to portray that kind of picture? He would be grieved. And he would probably stop speaking to me. I'm not going to chance it. See, I don't walk by my feelings. I don't get up in the morning and go to the radio station to do the broadcast if I feel like it. I mean, I wonder how many of you get up in the morning and go to your job because you're so excited about going to it. But you do it because it's your duty to do it. And you do it with joy and gladness, with a rejoicing heart. 
Now, I didn't get here overnight. I went through my time of grumbling and discipline and hardship. And I suspect some of you have learned the same thing. Next week, I'm going to go the second step in this story. There is a second half to it. It's found in the book of Colossians or Galatians. As Paul begins to liken Hagar to Mount Sinai, to the law. And I want to tell you today, we do not live by the law. We don't cast the law away. Rather, the Lord God of heaven writes it on our hearts. So that when we're doing what we would like to do, we're doing the will of God. The transformation that he brings to us. I know in this new year, the work he's going to accomplish and those of you who are willing to have it done will be a year of deliverance, of new opportunities, a year of immense spiritual growth as you understand the difference between Mount Sinai and the cross of Jesus Christ. And I just want to tell you all, I do love you. I'm very grateful for each one of you who's here and comes. I'm grateful for the gifts you bring to this fellowship and the kindness you show. It's a joy to be a part of the National Prayer Chapel. First, because of Jesus. And secondly, because of you. Let's pray. Lord, you called us together. And I am so grateful that this church is not an Ishmael church. I'm grateful, Lord, that it is a church of the cross. A church of Jesus Christ. A church of the blood. Lord, I thank you. I praise and worship your mighty name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.